0: Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone. It is a project of EEI, Edison Electric Institute, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Viator, Executive Director of External Affairs at EEI, and I'm your host, Welcome. My guest today is Scott Siegel, a partner at the Bracewell firm who heads up their government relations and communications group called the Policy Resolution Group. Frequently on radio, TV, and print media, he has been working in energy circles for decades. Scott runs a utilities group called Energy Forward, often working with EEI on areas of shared interests. Like me, he's from Texas, but unlike me, he's a longhorn and not an Aggie. We won't hold that against him, so welcome, Scott.
1: Well, I'm glad to be here. So you're an Aggie. I I didn't know you went to Utah State. (laughs) (laughs)
0: You know, uh, some seasons they have a considerably better football team than my Texas Aggies do, so I I appreciate that. Well, Scott, you're very familiar with podcasts. Your firm hosts a podcast called The Lobby Shop. Can you give me an overview of what you cover on that show?
1: The Lobby Shop that we produce at uh, Bracewell attempts to bring listeners into conversations between Washington insiders who are directly involved in the policymaking process and the politics that uh, that shape the country. So it's not just limited to energy and environment, although, Brad, you and I might end up talking about those issues more than uh, more than most. We've been recording for, I think, over two years now and have over 100 episodes under our belt. I would be killed if I didn't say that it's available on all podcast platforms. And uh, be sure to tune into the Lobby Shop and be sure to like it if you do. And if you don't, then drop us an email and tell us why you don't. But, <laughs> but be sure to like it publicly. So we've been covering a lot of the same ground, probably, that, that you folks have been covering on, uh, on the podcast, which is to say it's really evolving based on the the pandemic and policymaker response to that.
0: Excellent. Well, let's get into it a little bit. You know, when I when I think of you, I think of you as an expert on really all things policy on Capitol Hill, particularly energy environment, some of the issues that you mentioned. There's a big piece of legislation that's passed out of the House and is going over to the Senate, what's being called the Heroes Package. And I'm curious to just get a broad overview of what's in that package for the energy industry.
1: Sure. I mean, you know, the weird part about the HEROES package is the absence of, frankly, significant energy provisions. In the run up to the bill, there were tons of vocal groups that were really pushing for inclusion of a broad range of energy provisions, you know, everything, uh, particularly extension and reform of clean energy tax credits. The argument to keep the HEROES package limited was the argument that, well, we want everything, strictly speaking, related to COVID 19. Response. And if it's not, then we'll put it in a, in a later package that will come later in the summer. I do think it's a bit much to say that if you're not in the heroes bill, that it's a blown opportunity, which I think is what one of the uh, renewables guys was saying, mostly because this bill is not going anywhere. I had one wag on Capitol Hill tell me, well, it's 1,800 pages long, and we think maybe about 200 pages of it are actually the basis of uh, a bringing together for legislation. And of course, Brad, you know what the big picture is for the HEROES package. They want to marry essentially two concepts, a House proposed set of supports for the states and uh, to marry with a Senate, what's currently being developed in the Senate to address uh, a safe harbor for liability that's being worked on by both the McConnell office and Cornyn office, and we ought to see language on that fairly soon. So if they can manage to get those two things lined up and passed, that'll be a good day of work for this particular bill in my judgment.
0: So broad overview, it's existing programs, things that are related to COVID in particular, it's still $3 trillion though. And I think there's a lot of discussion about how much smaller a Senate package would be? To your point, 200 of the 1,800 pages. So I think that's mm-hmm. something to pay some attention to. So I guess there's not a, a, a ton of new programs, but are there things in this bill that you're hearing from your energy clients that they're they're particularly worried about that are having an yeah. impact on the industry?
1: The issues dealing with the so-called shut-off moratorium and the debt collection moratorium. These are two separate issues. And debt collection and disconnection language was included in the House package, the language developed by the House Financial Services Committee, which essentially cuts off debt collection for a period of now and including a significant period after the health pandemic is over. Those provisions were included. Uh, long about the one thousand page mark in the legislation, and the provision dealing with disconnection uh, was put in uh, the energy that the Energy and Commerce Committee had been working hard on, and frankly had greatly improved over some of the concepts that had been coming down the pike from financial services was uh, was also included in the bill. Now, let me just say a, a few things about that. Um, the first is is that I think both provisions but certainly more the debt collection provisions than the disconnection moratorium presupposes that the only business of the power sector is collecting bills when when in fact the sector works very hard on responding to the pandemic crisis itself reliable resilient power is a critical element to not only responding to the pandemic but also to coming back online healthcare institutions Uh, schools, et cetera, everybody relies on reliable and resilient power. And the the charitable foundations associated with the industry have been giving a lot of resources directly to other first responders, to communities they serve, a lot of the so-called PPE equipment flowing through the industry. And in addition, twice now, Congress has acted to increase the amount of money allocated to the so-called LIHEAP program stands for Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. That's the, the program that says for folks that are at or near the poverty level, it's a way for them to get additional assistance to pay f- for their power bills. And they've supported increased funding for that program. And I know the industry writ large has done the same. And if you do one size fits all of the sort envisioned, particularly by the debt collection language and the HEROES bill, you're potentially doing a lot of harm. And, you know, I know you like me to make predictions, so I'll just say I don't think either of these provisions is exactly ready just yet for legislation. I don't think it will be in the merged bill, certainly not the debt collection language,
0: a better chance for the disconnect moratorium. I think you hit a couple of very important points and some of the things that I've heard over and over again. You, you mentioned it towards the end power companies need to be able to communicate with customers to put them on things like payment plans and this debt collection moratorium would prevent that and so that's one of the things that mayrook was keying on there's another group the national association of state utility consumer advocates they weighed in to these are the people that are opposite power companies in those state proceedings trying to fight for lower bills and those guys were weighing in saying the exact same thing look we need power companies to be able to communicate with customers this language is problematic. And then in addition to the National Association of State Regulatory Commissioners, 18 state commissions have also sent letters into Congress and to the Speaker just illuminating some of the problems here. So appreciate you highlighting that. So that's sort of what's in the Heroes Package, some of the good, some of the bad. You mm-hmm. talked about how the Senate doesn't want to take up the whole thing, and they've sort of got different drivers, obviously, run by a different party. Can you talk to me about the expected timeline? When does the Senate dig in and what are the triggers that cause them to start moving?
1: Well, initially, the agreed-upon legislative horizon swirled around the date of July 1. And uh, the reason for that, and of course, uh, we have to issue a caveat that in recent months, we've seen that events have a a terrible way of interceding on behalf of what the Congress thinks it can do, or for that matter, what the government at large thinks it can do. But the default deadline was to be the end of June because it marked the point at which the payroll protection plan, the so-called PPP plan for smaller uh, business entities was gonna run out of cash. And it marked the point at which the fiscal year for most of the states that were accounting on the Congress to come together for a state and local package, the fiscal year ends at that point. But that's already a little bit uh, discombobulated, I'll just say, because for one thing, the White House this weekend indicated that there'd been a breakdown in talks, and that they may not even engage in formal negotiations until late May or early June. So if you're not going to start re-up the negotiations until early June, meeting the July 1 legislative horizon may not work so much. One of the reasons that July 1 might have slipped a little bit is that PPP funding no longer seems to be as much of a forcing mechanism as it once was. PPP applications and payments were flying off the shelves like hotcakes, now, that toward pace has slowed down a little bit, the third round of funding, which was seen as a plausible forcing mechanism, but recent reports show that the SBA, Small Business Administration, doesn't think it's the case any longer that they're gonna give out money at that pace, so perhaps things are becoming attenuated. That, and one other thing, too, is I noticed that there's been an attempt to take the obstacles that may be getting in the way of PPP money flowing quite as fast and address those obstacles in a separate piece of legislation, which also will take the pressure, a little bit of the pressure off the PPP. That said, there are still pockets of urgency to get her done. It's hard to imagine, hard to remember, but we are in an election year. And particularly for vulnerable GOP incumbents, they're not quite as well positioned to say, well, we'll just wait, let's wait and see how well the initial CARES Act work is being done. You know, there's other things that are, are forcing the issue. So we're either going to see some of that one-off stuff get adopted, or we're going to see it be a major uh, push to get it done. July one's still the date to watch, but there are a lot of reasons to believe it'll it'll uh, it'll slip.
0: What about the White House? Like, where are their priorities? Are they yeah? Are they aligned with the Senate? How do you sort of gauge that?
1: Well, I mean, the White House obviously has an election as well, and I heard just before I sat down. Some discussion again of maybe cutting another check. When I say cutting another check, I mean actually sending out another payment per household to sort of stimulate the economy. Initially, that check was to take care of literally cost of living expenses. But uh, now the question is maybe that would be a good way as more and more states have begun to have reopeners, maybe that would be a good way to begin to stimulate the economy.
0: Let's take a step forward. We're in middle of July and the legislation has gone through. The Senate has, in effect, a couple more weeks of legislating before they take the alleged August break and then get into full campaign swing. There's been a lot of discussion about what renewable energy groups might get. There's a discussion from the speaker that maybe that would be in an infrastructure package. What are the other bills, other types of bills that remain the sort of things beyond heroes that we might see some action on over the summer, even early fall?
1: Well, this is not in the category of another bill, but it's in the category of another topic, which we ought to talk about a little bit. So I'll use the answerer's ability to reshape the question a little bit, which is, I do want to focus a little bit on some misconceptions dealing with this liability provision. The assumption is that that would be in whatever the HEROES bill becomes. It is possible, of course, that what the HEROES bill becomes will bear no resemblance to the HEROES bill. So that might be, and the timing on it might slip beyond July 1. So that might be one of the next bills. But I just want to make sure people are thinking straight about liability. We saw some opponents to a liability safe harbor take the position that this would be a massive mechanism to just take all power providers and fossil fuel companies and the like, and totally put them outside of of liability for a broad range of topics, environmental topics. I even saw a letter from my good friend, and he is a friend of mine, Jamie Raskin up in in Maryland, uh, make the argument that this would be an attempt to get out of climate change litigation. You know, I want to be clear What's under discussion appears to be, and we ought to see language on this soon, but appears to be very limited to what is referred to in the trade as exposure liability. That's the concern the whole business community and power providers have. If you were designated as essential, as our industry was, and as a result, you had employees that were coming in and you met applicable recommendations from OSHA, from CDC, from others in a position to do it that being sued for undifferentiated exposure, which can occur anywhere, seems to be an active discouragement to bringing the economy back online. In fact, the argument might be it's a prerequisite to bring it back online. Look, there are plenty of other liability issues, aside from exposure liability, that are legitimately potentially part of liability language, but I'm not hearing a lot of discussion about those like the treatment of independent contractors. That may be in there as well. Like healthcare privacy, it's a very interesting issue. There are other issues, as you pointed out. Infrastructure is one of them. I think McConnell made clear he didn't want to have this son of heroes, whatever this bill is going to be called. He didn't want it to to be the infrastructure bill, even in light of the fact that the administration had suggested that maybe infrastructure would play a role in the current bill. He said no, so that obviously puts it to the top of the list but as you and I both know, what is every week in Washington? Infrastructure week. So I'm not, if Lucy has picked up that football one too many times for me to tell you that an infrastructure bill will do it, but it would be a convenient way to house those clean energy tax provisions and other provisions.
0: Usually in an election year, legislation kind of comes to a close as we get into the fall and everybody's home campaigning. This is probably the hardest model I'm gonna ask you to predict on, but what are the conditions that lead to some significant fall legislation moving?
1: Okay, first of all, there's the, what I'd call, well, what many call the black swan. I mean, one thing we don't know is if we're done, okay? It seems like we know that we flatten the curve for coronavirus and it seems like uh, some states are taking phased and tentative efforts at reopening it's not quite as black and white as it's sometimes discussed in the in the media as this state is open and this state is closed i mean that's not not exactly closed states aren't altogether closed and open states certainly aren't altogether open so so there's a phased approach to reopening but even with those modest steps in the direction of a reopening will we have a relapse will we have a a secondary uh, condition. And if we do, if we have a, a relapse of the pandemic, essentially, that equals more emergency legislation. So that, so the black swan is one of those things. Now, by the way, the black swan does not just have to be COVID and power providers are, I think are very acutely aware of this, that at the very time we're supposed to be recovering from the pandemic, it's the very time we're supposed to get, you know, tornadoes, in the Midwest, and we're supposed to get hurricanes in the Southeast. And uh, if we were to have... And fires out West. and And fires out West, right. If we were to have any or all of those things occur at the same time that we have deployed first responders to do other things related to the pandemic, it could be quite disastrous, and it will... And the least of the problems associated with that is that it will draw Congress back into legislating because they'll, they'll have to pay for more emergency response. They are planning for that already, but still, we just don't know the severity of what might pile on one-on-one. And the last thing I'd say is that sometimes it's overplayed that election years kill legislation. You know, what usually happens in the election year, in my experience, is most legislation gets killed, but like one or two things... Make it out. I mean, I can remember when I first came to Washington, which a giant asteroid had just uh, destroyed the dinosaurs, and I came to Washington. And I remember a super fund was, was something much debated and was finally addressed. Crises, like I've discussed at the, at the front end, uh, produced both the Oil Pollution Act and arguably advanced the Cleaner Act amendments of 90.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Scott. We're going to have to leave the conversation there. I appreciate you joining us. And I also want to reach out to listeners and remind them to go ahead and subscribe to the Lobby Shop podcast and listen to more of the musings of Scott and other energy experts at the firm. So thank you.
1: Appreciate it very much. Thanks for the time.
0: hope that you found this to be an informative 15 minutes and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights about the intersection of energy policy and COVID-19. To learn more about the electric industry's response to COVID-19, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.